Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. They see over 140 patients every day with medical issues ranging from toothache to heart attacks and everything in between. We're on the front lines at the emergency department of LM Hospital in New London to find out more. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Every day, thousands of people across the nation are treated at hospital emergency departments. For many, it's a quick visit with outpatient aftercare, but for some, it can be the start of a long stay in hospital, being seen by specialists and being treated for serious medical conditions. The doctors, nurses and support staff at emergency departments work long hours and in an environment that can be very unpredictable. Dealing with minor medical issues to possibly full-blown management of multiple accident victims, they see it all 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Connecticut East this week was given special access to the emergency department of L&M Hospital in New London and we went on the front lines to see what they had to deal with. Dr Tucker, thanks for letting us shadow you mm-hmm. on the very, very busy emergency department here at the hospital. You're halfway through your shift. How's it been so far? Uh, it's been extremely busy today. Lots of very sick people from all over, vacationers as well as locals, which is both exciting and challenging. Just give us an idea of sort of the amount of staff that generally are, are on duty at the, the emergency department here. So as far as physicians, we always have two emergency physicians on duty during the daytime hours and for a few hours overnight, just one physician. And then we always have either one or two physician assistants as well. So we do have a lot of providers to take care of the larger volume of patients here. And, I mean, sort of the days, I mean, is there, are they all the same? Are they all equally busy or do you get certain days which are more busier than others? So Mondays tend to be our busiest day on average over time with fluctuations widely on other days. Any idea why Mondays? Because it seems like an odd day to the outsider. <laughs> so it's after the weekend. People tend to build up things over the weekend. Things happen. They don't want to deal with them. And then work comes Monday. And then that often triggers an emergency department visit. And of course, we've all been dealing with COVID-19, continuing to deal with the aftermath, obviously, of the pandemic. I mean, how did it affect and and what challenges did it pose for all of you working in the emergency department? It was a completely different world. I mean, it was really like night and day, mid-March, when we kind of went into full COVID. There was a lot of, just like the public had a lot of, you know, constantly changing information. We, as medical providers, also had that challenge of constantly changing messaging from both our national as well as hospital leadership. There was a great deal of fear. You know, am I going to be next? Am I going to get COVID and give it to my family? And how to best protect ourselves? In the beginning days of the pandemic, it was all about the PPE, right? It was what PPE do we have? What do we need? 
are we going to run out? That was a constant topic um, and a source of a lot of anxiety for many people. We were fortunate here never to run out. We did reuse in a safe way, but we never ran out, and we did always have the protection we needed. Over time, as you know, restrictions started to kick in and people started to really pay more attention, um, there were media reports that people were sort of like concerned about going to emergency departments that they weren't coming in I mean you know what was the reality from your point of view because we can read as many media reports as we like but it's not always as accurate a picture as obviously the people on the front lines people were scared for sure to come to the emergency department and we didn't see all our usual chronic patients with their um, emphysema exacerbations with their heart failure with their alcoholism they just dried up they disappeared it was very strange we had very low volume for several months until that June, mid-June reopening, we had extremely low volume. And then through the summer, people were still very fearful, but did come in if they had an emergent condition, but still not in the amount. We saw some days half our usual volume, which is a, an immense cut in in patients to care for and the staff to keep on hand to be able to care for them. Just to give us a sense, uh, uh, you know, during a normal sort of like non-COVID situation, how many sort of like patients would you expect to see come through the emergency department in a shift? So we see 140 per day here. So it kind of depends on what you define as a shift because the nurses kind of work standard shifts. The physicians have staggered shifts and all over the place. So we do see about 140 a day is our average And what sort of things are we talking about? It's like range of of injuries and and problems and situations. Just give us like a sense of what it is that you deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, so one of the great things about emergency medicine is the variety. So just today, I've taken care of a very simple tooth dental problem. A uh, filling had fallen out, leaving an exposed nerve and a lot of pain, but no real emergency, which I was able to put some temporary cement in and provide a lot of relief for that patient but and give him the follow-up he needed, all the way to a patient with life-threatening heart attack who we were able to activate our cardiac catheterization lab. The cardiologist came down, and he was in the cardiac catheterization lab within 20 minutes to have his blockage opened up. So that's just today. You know, it's truly the most minor to the most serious. Let's just touch upon that because it is something which I think a lot of emergency departments, you know, have to deal with. And of course, you're there to look after people. That is the primary thing. And nobody's ever going to question any doctor, nurse or hospital about the fact that they care for people. But sometimes people really don't need to be here, do they? That is accurate. However, defining what is an emergency to each person, depending on their personal medical experience, their professional experience, is very hard to do. Um, as you, you know, it's been in the news lately, some insurance companies are trying to define that and retroactively define what was an emergency. And I think that's pretty much impossible because people just don't know. A sore throat can be a simple sore throat or it could be a life-threatening abscess in the deep spaces of their neck that could close off their airway within hours. So people don't know when they have a sore throat, they know they're sick. And it's up to us to really determine what that emergency is.
So, Dr. Tucker, we just observed you uh, dealing with a female patient. Obviously, we're not going to identify her in any way, but just give us a little bit of an idea about, you know, what she came in for and what it is that you've done for her. Yeah, so this patient came in after she had gone to her primary care this morning because she'd been experiencing some shortness of breath with exertion. So that's with walking, even with showering, just activities made her extremely short of breath, which was new, developing over the last several weeks, but much worse over one week. So her primary care did an EKG in the office and was able to identify that she had a new type of heart rhythm called atrial fibrillation. And atrial fibrillation is a particularly important arrhythmia to identify because not only of its direct effects on the heart, but because of its risk of creating clots, which then can give you stroke. So many patients with this type of arrhythmia have higher risk for stroke than the average um, population with similar risk factors besides AFib. And they need to be on very strong medications, which are anticoagulants. And that's lifetime. I noticed that you actually gave her a couple of options as well while you were talking to her that you know that she could have some medications and potentially go home or that she could stay here in the hospital. Why did you give those options out? Medicine in the last 20 years has changed to be much more shared decision making than paternalistic you do this, I say this, doctor knows best. Many patients have strong feelings about their care and they've either done research or a family member who thinks they know everything has told them what to do. So it's really important to get the patient's perspective, to understand their underlying motivation, to get to have good collaboration and alignment. This patient was intent on being discharged and I tried to push right for an admission that could create an adversarial, you know, care environment, less likely to be adherent to medications and do the appropriate follow-up even if she was admitted and discharged. So I try to allow the patients to express what they want as well, unless it's a clear-cut case where there's only one right answer. This case wasn't like that. This could be potentially treated as an outpatient with close follow-up in the right group of patients. The other thing, of course, is um, with the advent of the internet over so many years, of course, we've all become sort of like internet diagnosers, which causes the medical world a huge amount of headaches. But that said, do you actually find that people are becoming more in tune with their health and are listening and, you know, are fairly up to date and accurate on some of the things that they have had in the past? And it isn't all just scaremongering by them you know, based on stuff they've read on the internet. So I think that's the rare patient that actually has done some research that makes a positive impact on the care. Unfortunately, most of the time, it makes a negative impact. It's the fear factor. It's that every little bump or lymph node is cancer. And that's not the way we want to go. It's human nature, isn't it, really? Yeah, it is. You know, of course, patients are scared. And, you know, in the past, they would just come to their doctor and get the right answer. But medicine has changed. It's harder to get to see your doctor right away. Or many people don't have a primary care. And so they end up, you know, doing these alternative things, such as the Internet. The other thing I noticed as we walked out, a couple of colleagues of yours came up. Um, A lot of meetings in hallways, I'm guessing, happens in emergency departments. I mean, the reality is you're one of the chiefs, so clearly they're coming to you for a little bit of advice. Just talk to us about that. Yes, so emergency medicine is full of interruptions. There's actually been studies that quantify how many interruptions per minute we have as emergency physicians and the increased risk of errors in relation to distractions. In this case, this was a clearly appropriate one. So this was a physician assistant who was seeing a patient as well as the nurse caring for her who wanted to come to discuss care and collaborate. 
And so part of my role as an emergency physician as well as the assistant director is to supervise the physician assistants and nurse practitioners we have working alongside us here to provide the best care possible. And notice a lot of technologies. Well, while you were having your meeting, um, my escort just pointed out something that's actually on the floor here, an incredible piece of technology that has multiple languages on there. Just talk to us about that because that must be so helpful because although looking around, I'm sure there's multilingual staff here, there's always going to be a time when you're going to get somebody that you just don't have somebody who can communicate with them. Yes, absolutely. We have a video interpreter service, which allows us to, in an iPad-like function, um, press the language we need and have a live interpreter with video feed 24 hours a day for most languages in the world. Obviously, there's some obscure dialects that we may not have, but it is extremely helpful. And in fact, you are not actually really allowed to use your bilingual or unless you're actually a trained certified interpreter, with the exception of some, you know, rare emergent circumstances when, you know, there's not time for that intervention. But really, that is the standard of care that you're using a formal certified medical interpreter. And it must be absolutely just so helpful to you as well because it's, as you say, it's it's instantaneous. There's no waiting around and especially if somebody's coming in and they're showing some very critical symptoms. Yes, absolutely. It is helpful. And in the past, you know, some patients perhaps, you know, maybe had some things missed or the subtle clues that we didn't get because of the language. So that there's definitely room to uh, provide increased level of care with these devices. That said, it is very slow. It about doubles the time it takes myself and the nurse to care, to interview, to follow up. And so it is, it is somewhat negative in that impact because it's all about patient flow and trying to be as efficient as possible in the emergency department. We hear so much about overdose these days. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, how do you deal with that? Yeah, so we see many, many patients with accidental or intentional drug overdoses, opiates being the number one thing patients overdose on, but often it's also a polypharmacy type of overdose. It is wonderful that there is widespread use of Narcan, both in the facilities, in the pre-hospital setting, as well as in the home. I would advocate everyone to have it who has anyone in their life who potentially has a prescription for an opiate or an opiate addiction, uh, because it's absolutely life-saving. And it can be that difference between life and death until the EMS people can arrive to provide definitive management. Clearly, if it is a deliberate overdose situation, there are protocols that that kick in and that will involve, I'm sure, some sort of psychological evaluation. And, And would somebody then have to stay in hospital for a little bit longer? Yes, so they are seen from the medical perspective always first. We treat the acute medical concern. We're able to usually save them with um, naloxone, also known as Narcan, and we stabilize them in the emergency department. Often we're able to observe them for perhaps six or eight hours and then what we call medically clear them for our psychiatric team to be able to do an evaluation if there is concern for intent to harm as opposed to accidental drug overdose. And then with the psychiatric evaluation, that's for, we're very fortunate to have a very good staff of well-trained psychiatric clinicians, which are mostly LCSWs, they're the licensed social workers, as well as one APRN in that field, as well as our psychiatrist, the physician who would also be overseeing that and helping to make those decisions about which patients need to be admitted to a psychiatric unit, either voluntarily or against their will involuntarily because they're in acute danger to themselves. 
Let's talk about accidental overdose. It, it can easily happen. I mean, especially if you're taking multiple medications, it's very easy you know, to forget which ones you've taken. They're very powerful drugs as well. What happens in that sort of situation? Because clearly, if it is proven it was just purely an accident, that's one thing. But do they still need some, maybe some extra help or some guidance once they leave the hospital to try and make sure that doesn't happen again? Yeah, absolutely. We um, always offer that treatment. It's very difficult to get patients to accept that treatment often. And as soon as they receive the antidote, naloxone, they often want to leave immediately. And that's a real challenge um, between trying to balance does a patient is competent to make a medical decision after just accidentally overdosing and being near death and now awake and alert? Or are they incompetent at that time and do I need to hold them against their will, chemically or physically restrain them until they can be more mentally clear to be able to make an informed medical decision? We do have the ability to get patients into drug treatment programs. We have another team of caregivers who are able to assist with that. And then several of our physicians are trained and are able to prescribe Suboxone, which is one of the drugs used in medication-assisted treatment of opiate use disorders. And so we can bridge them. We can start them on therapy if they're open to it and then get him hooked up with an outpatient provider in a few days' time. Let me just quickly ask you a, a brief question about polypharmacy, this whole thing where people are on multiple medications yeah. on a daily or weekly basis. How much of a problem does that pose? And is that, sort of like, is that increasing? Because we are sort of seeing people you know, being put on more medications rather than maybe being given lifestyle so like choices to try and get them off of the drugs. The biggest place we see polypharmacy is in the elderly. Too many medications, too many drug interactions, confusion about medications. In fact, the patient I just admitted a few minutes ago to the hospital accidentally overdosed on several for blood pressure medications, which can be extremely dangerous and even lethal if untreated. And that was an accident, but nevertheless, she needs to be admitted. And so polypharmacy, particularly in elderly, is, is, is extremely high up on the list of concerns. I know for my elderly family members, I have advocated very strongly for eliminating the medications that are not vital and really trying to trim down to the essential medications to be able to avoid, you know, the unsteadiness, the falls, the broken hips from the polypharmacy. And how has the situation changed as well with regards to these very strong painkillers that we've heard about in the past, the Oxycontins, that sort of stuff, which now have become almost sort of like a no-go area in certain circumstances. And a lot of doctors, and I'm guessing hospitals as well, possibly as like really sort of like looking hard as to whether or not they prescribe those. I mean, what's the situation there? Because often it is the only choice, surely. Yeah, it does bring bring up a very challenging topic when there are limited options for non-opiate pain relief. However, there's a lot of options there most of the time. I would suggest at least 90% of the time there's different options, which are better choices. Combination therapies, physical therapies, all the holistic therapies, they're all there, and they really just need to be utilized properly. I prescribe opiates in the rare circumstance when a patient's being discharged where it is the only choice, whether because of polypharmacy or other organ dysfunction or failure of other treatments, but it's far and away the rare circumstance. So what would you say is the most challenging part of your role? I would say dealing with alcohol addiction and the non-emergent type 
complaints is the most stressful on that regular basis, grates on you, and is particularly hard to care for in the emergency department. Alcoholism, as you, as everyone knows, is rampant. It is legal. That doesn't mean it's safe. And unfortunately, we have many, many patients who are intoxicated, brought to the emergency department for public disruption, and they are very challenging to handle in a safe, compassionate medical place. Also, I'm guessing, you know, from the point of view of yours and the staff's safety, I mean, you do have public safety offices here, but I'm guessing it can get challenging sometimes from a physical point of view. Yes, absolutely. And that that is absolutely accurate as far as the um, patients who are intoxicated or um, on alcohol or other drugs or mental health disorders. They're the most challenging. And yes, there's been physical assaults through my career. I've been fortunate not to have anything serious. But it's happened to everybody, unfortunately. How do you turn off at the end of the day? Or are you even able to turn off? Because it is, like we said, a challenging role, both mentally and physically. So how do you walk away from it at the end of a shift? I think that's part of the makeup of an emergency physician is the ability to turn off. I think that you have to be able to just kind of leave it. You know, I take care of that emergency and then I'm done. I've either discharged them, I've given them to another doctor in the outpatient setting or in the inpatient setting. And I feel that if I've done my best, if I've worked hard, if I felt like I've done everything I can, I'm able to mentally close that door. I think the times those vague cases that leave you wondering a little, sometimes that keeps you up at night. And that's hard. I don't think that anyone has a perfect answer to that. But I feel that doing my best at during my job allows me to sleep well. And, of course, I have to ask you the question, in those times where, sadly, despite all the efforts, you're unable to save somebody, how does that hit you? Well, I'd say it depends. If it's, you know, an older person who's lived a life and, you know, I think we've, we're in the emergency medicine field, we're, we're quite used to that and we're comfortable with that and we're able to, you know, express sympathy for the patient and the family, um, but able to get through that. But it's really the pediatric deaths that hit you the hardest. And I've only had a few, fortunately, but the ones that I've had, they're, they're, just, they're just heartbreaking and tragic. And it really takes a team team effort of debriefing and talking and working the process is there anything we could have done to you know save this patient or the next that that drives me and allows me to kind of move move on from that I am also the quality director of the emergency department and so I work on quality and process improvement all the time allowing after you've had the emotional you know grief and emotional release moving on your brain to then improvement and quality is how I is how I cope as one of the chiefs obviously on the floor when you're on shift apart from looking after yourself you're clearly looking out for your staff as well it's a big task because you've got patients and also clearly making sure that the mental health of your own staff is what it should be Absolutely. You know, when you're a leader in the department and you're also working clinically, um, a lot of things come at you, as you've started to see today a little bit of. We do have a huddle together during our shift to kind of regroup and see if there's any concerns. And that that provides an outlet for hearing any issues and trying to um, act on them before they become a problem and also allowing us to give kudos to our team for great care and encouragement. And so that type of camaraderie is really a benefit of this team-style medicine. 
So, Dr. Tucker, it's the end of another shift for you. How's this particular one been? Give us a bit of a snapshot. So it has been a nice variety of cases today, from minor things to very serious patients, which is nice. We've had a lot of people arrive in the last couple hours, so right now we're quite full up and waiting for patients to get admitted to the floors. So this is kind of a normal shift. I wouldn't consider this super busy or super slow. This is kind of a normal emergency shift. Of course, um, we are in summer as we're talking to you, and summer is sort of trauma season, isn't it? Summer is trauma season, especially even spring when people are want to get like out from being cooped up and then they're on ladders and falling. We saw a lot of trauma in May and the beginning parts of June, and I'm sure it'll continue. The car accidents, they really start to stack up, especially because we're you know, a bit of a summer destination and the traffic piles up and Um, So that's definitely uh, hazards out there. And one thing I wanted to just catch up on with you, because we sort of spoke about it um, off mic um, earlier, was about the fact that you're seeing people come in and they're sort of, they're sicker um, than, you know, the normal. COVID caused that? I think COVID certainly played a role. COVID prevented patients from getting their usual preventative care. Uh, and particularly managing their chronic diseases. I would say the management of chronic diseases by their primary care, not just their specialists, but their primary care is probably the number one barrier to our current healthcare system moving forward because that's what I see the most of is recurrent, you know, exacerbations of chronic disease, particularly diabetes, high blood pressure, and kidney disease here in the emergency department, causing all their down-the-line ramifications. Well, Dr. Cynthia Tucker of L&M Hospital in New London, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for letting us shadow you on a shift today. Thank you, Brian. It's been great being here. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at greenvalleytreeworks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, Frank D'Andrea, who owns a Dunkin' Donuts on Route 81 in Killingworth, and several others along the Shoreline and New Haven area, applied to the Killingworth Planning and Zoning Commission last year to allow drive through windows in the town's commercial areas. Last October, the commission unanimously approved the application, making drive through windows an accessory use in the town's commercial district, so that now property owners can apply for a special exception, and planning and zoning can review and approve any plans – 
to add a drive-through. Commission Chair Thomas Lentz said the drive-through lanes had been opposed in Killingworth for years after a bank on Route 81, now the town library, wanted to put in a drive-through window decades ago. Adjusting to a reality where drive-through windows are nearly ubiquitous for banks, chain pharmacies and many restaurants, a number of towns in the region are revisiting the issue. In the day this week, when legal sports betting debuts next month in Connecticut, it'll be remarkable for who's involved. The Mashantucket Pequot and Mohegan tribes, the casino duopoly, won't have it all to themselves. The Connecticut Lottery Corporation, the quasi-public agency whose contributions to state coffers have exceeded the casino's payments of slot machine revenues in every fiscal year since 2012-2013, will be a major player. Authorised to operate up to 15 retail sports betting locations around the state, as well as online skin or brand. In the Middletown Press this week in Haddam, nonagenarian Nesta Gendro had a rare opportunity to take part in a ceremonial flight on an 81-year-old airplane as part of a programme that allows World War II veterans to relive their military days. Gendrew, who lives in Higginham section of town, flew in the aircraft as part of the commemorative event sponsored locally by Sports Clips and organised by Dream Flights International. And in the Chronicle this week, without a word of opposition, Newington recently became the first central Connecticut community to authorise a recreational marijuana store for 2022. The fine fettle chain should be allowed to sell to recreational users 21 and older, the Plan and Zoning Commission decided unanimously earlier this month. Fine Fettle, owned by a former Newington councillor, currently sells medical marijuana at stores on the Berlin Turnpike, as well as in Willimantic and stores. And now that Connecticut will allow recreational sales starting next year, the company wants its Newington shop to become a hybrid operation, selling to patients with medical certificates as well as adult recreational users. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week, where you can also listen to the show again on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media platforms too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.